looking at Joshua chapter 2 this morning. Joshua, we saw last week, has been commissioned by God. And he's preparing the men to cross over the Jordan River to engage the Canaanites in battle. And as Pastor Dennis preached last week, as I was in Indianapolis, uh, the people give their wholehearted support to Joshua, and they encourage him. The last verse of chapter uh, 1 says, Only be strong and courageous. And that is exactly what God had told Joshua at the beginning of chapter 1. So what we would expect next in this story, in the narrative of Joshua, would be what we are going to read in chapter 3. That is what we would expect to be the next scene in the story. Yet between chapters 1 and 3 are these unusual events that are recorded for us in chapter 2. So on on a surface level, you could say that chapter 2, I'm not talking theologically here, I'm talking on a surface level, you could say that chapter 2 could be taken out of the book of Joshua without it affecting the major storyline of the book. From a surface level, you could say, why do we need chapter 2 in the Bible? So for instance, when you look at chapter 1 and you read verses 10 and 11, it says, And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people Prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And then you jump down and you read uh, verses 16 to 18, and they answer Joshua. The people answer, all that you have commanded us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. And then wouldn't it be a fitting transition to jump to chapter 3, verse 1. Then Joshua rose early in the morning and they set out from Shittim and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. That's exactly what chapter 1 is telling Joshua to do, to prepare because in three days you're going to cross over the Jordan. And then in chapter 3, Joshua rises and he is lodging and he's taking the people to lodge at the brink of the Jordan. But yet between these two events, these two chapters, we see chapter 2. Why do we need chapter 2 in the book of Joshua? Why do we need chapter 2 of the book of Joshua in the Bible? 
Well, chapter 2 provides us a broader canvas on which to see the heart and the work of God unfold in the story of redemption. You think of a painter that, that is painting a beautiful picture. You think of, of Bob Ross on his show. How many of you remember Bob Ross? And what is he doing? He, he comes at the beginning of his show to a blank canvas, and he's going to create beautiful trees. <laughs> he's going to create a beautiful picture on this canvas. That's what we have God doing for us here. Chapter 2 provides us a broader canvas on which to see the heart and the works of God unfold in the story of redemption. You see, chapter 1 and chapter 2 actually fit parallel to each other. For instance, chapter 1 focuses on the faith and obedience of the Israelites. Chapter 2, we're going to see, focuses on the fear and the rebellion of the Canaanites. Chapter 1 focuses on the faith and the obedience of Joshua. And chapter 2 focuses on the faith and the obedience of this unusual person named Rahab. In chapter 2, we're also going to see God's heart for the nations. Particularly God's heart for one seemingly insignificant woman who is a part of a wicked nation and is herself a woman with a very tainted background. Yet this woman is who God chooses to extend His grace to. In fact, Matthew chapter 1, verse 5 tells us that the family line of which Rahab was a part, from this family line would come Jesus Himself. It was Rahab who was actually the mother of Boaz that we read of in the book of Ruth. You see, God cares for those that we so often overlook. If you want to see a New Testament parallel to chapter 2 of Joshua, think of John chapter 4. Where Jesus is on His way. But as it says in John 4, Jesus needed to go through Samaria. You could have taken out the story of the woman of the, at the well in Jericho. And you could have had Jesus begins His journey and then He arrives. But in between that narrative is this story of the woman at the well who like Rahab was completely undeserving. It was completely unexpected of what Jesus would do in her life. You see, God cares for those that we so often overlook. In Joshua chapter 2, we're going to see that Rahab would demonstrate a, a very unlikely faith. In fact, that's the title of today's sermon, An Unlikely Faith. 
And in this passage, what we're going to do is over the next two weeks, we're going to look at four characteristics of an unlikely faith. Because let's face it, no matter how good or how bad people may seem, no matter how good or how bad you think that you are, the fact that you have placed your faith, if this is true of you, in God as the Savior of mankind through His Son, Jesus Christ, it is an unlikely faith that you possess. It is a faith, as the book of Ephesians chapter 2 tells us, that you did not come to on your own. The fact that we are sitting here today shows just how unlikely it is yet miraculous it is that God has worked in our lives. I was just thinking today in, the, in, 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 uh, in my car just how undeserving that I am of God's grace. And yet God has chosen in His kindness and goodness to extend it freely. That's the same for each of us. You see, folks, the key principle that we are looking in this series is that a faith that conquers is a faith in Christ. And this faith that we possess, it is not a faith that somehow has originated in our hearts. It is God and His kindness that gives us this faith that we may come to Christ. And it is God in His kindness and in His working in our hearts that keeps that faith alive and active within us. You see, no matter how respectable you are in the community, no matter how respected you are in this church, no matter how respected you are, Wherever you may go, you are undeserving of God's kindness. But as we see in this narrative of Rahab, God extends it still. We are going to look, as time permits us, uh, the goal is to get to, chapter, to verse 14 and... Uh, and then finish the rest of the chapter next week. If we don't get to verse 14, either way, we'll finish chapter 2 next week. Uh, so we're going to roll up our sleeves and get into this narrative. We're going to look this morning at the first two characteristics of an unlikely faith. But before we do that, let's pray. Father, I pray that you would be at work this morning. God, that you would open our hearts that You would enlighten our understanding, Lord, of Your Word. That You would enlighten our awe and wonder at this beautiful canvas of redemption that You have painted for us. God, that You would increase our amazement at the kindness and wonder of Your grace to an undeserving people 
undeserving individuals as each of us are. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read for you, and you follow along in your Bible. I'm going to read verses 1 to 7. We're dividing verses 1 to 14 into these two scenes. Verse 1 says, And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from uh, Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the Fords. You didn't know they had Ford vehicles back then, did you? And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. What we see, first of all, in these these first seven verses of Joshua 1, the first characteristic of an unlikely faith is that an unlikely faith is always sourced in God. Everyone has faith. It's not a question of do you have faith or does any particular individual have faith in this world? Everyone has faith in something. The question is, what is that faith sourced in? And for any faith to be sourced in the right thing, in truth, in the truth of who God is and what He has done, That faith must be sourced. It can only come from God Himself. We cannot, in our depravity and in our lostness, somehow stumble upon faith on our own. And here we see, in the first seven verses of this chapter, much like the book of Esther, we do not once see It specifically said, God did this, but yet God's fingerprints are all over this passage. The fact that God would direct these men to this specific woman in this great and mighty city. It's amazing. In verse 1 we see that it is ultimately God that seeks Rahab out. Verse 1 says, we, again, we don't read the word God mentioned here, but it's all over the place. Verse 1 says, And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly 
from Shittim as spies. So at the beginning of verse 1, we see that the spies are sent out. This, this place in which the people of Israel are encamped at Shittim, it, it's a familiar place. In fact, uh, Numbers chapter 25, it is this place where Israel committed the sin of idolatry and adultery. Think of the story of Balaam the prophet. You remember that story? That he, he um, the king of Moab sends Balaam to, to curse the people, but Balaam only prophesies goodness. So Balaam says, this is how you can get the children of Israel. Send these cultic religious prostitutes into the camp that the men would commit adultery with them and also worship their gods. This camp has a bad history. But here they are in a totally different scenario, about to enter the promised land. This passage not only reminds us of of this encampment in Shittim, but it also reminds us in Numbers 13 when Moses sent the twelve spies out. Remember that? In fact, on the screen, I have Numbers 13, verse 1, where it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. In Numbers 13, this was now 39 years ago, where 12 spies are sent out. Joshua himself and Caleb are two of the 12. They're the only ones that come back with a good report. And now here, there are simply two men that are secretly sent as spies. And here, Joshua instructs them, go view the land, so all of the land, but really focus in on Jericho. Why? Because as they cross the Jordan River, Jericho will be the first major city that they come across. And it was a mighty one. Some commentators will say, well, was Joshua acting by faith? Because we never clearly see that God tells um, Joshua to send out these two spies. And God did tell Moses to send out the twelve. And I think if we go there, we're missing the point that Joshua's not acting in a lack of faith. He's acting as a military commander. And he's sending these two individuals to spy out the land. I do think it's interesting that Joshua is not sending 12. So many times, if, 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 if um, we go with, with consensus and and large amounts of individuals with whatever is the majority, that may not always be where God truly desires to lead. We see it was 10 against 2 in Numbers 13, but the 10 were in the wrong. So Joshua says, you know what? I'm going to send out two men who are going to simply view the land. The spies are sent out But then we also see this quote-unquote incidental meeting. No, it was a providential meeting. 
The spies meet Rahab. The end of verse 1 says, They went out and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. This was a low-key base of operations for the people, for these two spies. This is the house of a prostitute. And obviously, without going into detail, there would be individuals more than likely that would be going in and out regularly of this person's house based on her occupation, right? But yet, this was again a canvas that is provided for us on which we see the beautiful painting of God's divine providence. The place where you would think a good citizen would avoid, God is there. And He providentially leads these two spies who are both practically thinking strategically, we are going to go in here, But yet, God has an even higher purpose because He says, before this city will be destroyed, I have some that I will save. God is in control. So it is God who seeks Rahab out. But then we see in verses 2-3, to we see another type of seeking. While God is seeking Rahab out, the king is seeking the spies out. Look at what happens in verse 2. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. So verse 2 shows us that word reaches the king somehow that there are two foreigners in the land. So how these individuals were seen, the text doesn't tell us. Did they stand out? Did they look entirely different from from the, the inhabitants of Jericho? We don't know. The point is, is that somehow they were found out, even though this was a covert, a covert base of operations for the people, or for these two spies. Word reaches the king. And then look at verse 3. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. So man, I mean, uh, you can't get a better movie than this, right? All of the sudden, the spies are, are, are in the house, And you hear a rough knocking at the door. And these servants of the king, they no doubt roughly and urgently tell Rahab, bring out these men who have entered into your house. And they give a logical reason, right? For they have come to search out the land. Now, obviously, these two men would think, okay, Rahab the the prostitute, she lives in Jericho. In fact, the text later tells us she lives within the walls of Jericho. 
They've come to seek out the land, this land that you're a part of. You're obviously on our side. You gain your income among our people. So whether you knew it or not, these people are actually spies. Bring them to us. You see, verse 3 shows us that the king demands Rahab's loyalty. He expects Rahab's loyalty. It would make common sense. But God is doing a work here, and there is a greater loyalty that is pulling Rahab in. No matter who it is that you know this morning, there are one of two loyalties that each of us are seeking after. It is a loyalty to our God and Savior, or it is a loyalty to the things of this world. And we as Christians, we are caught uh, uh, in the middle of the already not yet, that, that our, our, our uh, devotion, our loyalty is to God our Savior, yet we constantly feel that tug of loyalty to the world, don't we? And that's a constant battle. The, 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 the priorities of the world, the attitude of the world, the, the, the seeking out me and myself in this world, that I need to seek vengeance for myself. I need to seek my way in this world because if I don't, who is? All of that philosophy of the world. And, and, and the sad thing is when that philosophy of the world enters into the church, all of us, believer and unbeliever, are swearing allegiance to one of two realities. And you can see here that in the midst of God's working is Satan's working. That while God is seeking out Rahab, the king is also seeking Rahab's loyalty. Which way is she going to go? Well, verses 4 to 7 begin to give us a clue. Because. We see, verse 1, God is seeking Rahab out. Verses 2 to 3, the king is seeking out the spies. And then in verses 4 to 7, Rahab is seeking the spies' safety. How does Rahab respond to this intimidating situation? In verses 4 to 6, we, we begin to see hints of where Rahab's loyalty does indeed lie. Rahab indicates her loyalty in these verses. Verse 4 says this, But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And this is what she replies to these intimidating messengers, soldiers, that are banging at her door. She says, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. 
But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So Rahab lies to the spies, right? Or I mean, or to, the, uh, to the soldiers, to the king's messengers. Rahab's answer is, yes, they did come, he, come in, but I didn't know where they were from. And then, uh, when the gate's about to be closed at dark, the, 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 men, the spies, they knew that the gates were about to be closed because it was getting dark, so they fled away. That's her answer. The, the, the reality is verse 6. She takes them up to the roof. Now, now, when you think roof, it's more than likely not an outside roof, but an upstairs, almost like a storage area where there's this, these flax. Now, the age-old question, and when I took in college an ethics class at the, at the Christian college I went to, um, everybody wants to ask the question, was, Ahab, was Rahab right in lying? Because truth is truth, right? Regardless of the circumstance. And then others will say, well, yes, but when you are in battle, the situation has changed, the context has changed, so Rahab is justified. Well, I would like to sorely disappoint you and, and, and tell you and, and this is a key in interpreting the Bible. This type of stuff we'll talk about if you're maybe a part of that Bible study. The, uh, Joshua, as he records this story, isn't even desirous of us to raise the question, was Rahab right or wrong to lie? It's not even a question that the narrative is pointing out to us. In fact, there's some things that we're always going to wonder about when we read narratives in the Bible. In fact, teaching on, on interpreting narrative uh, literature in the Bible in Ghana, um, there were so many times that, that, that the pastors in Ghana would, say, would ask questions, and I said, guess what? And we were looking at the book of Genesis. Moses didn't want us to even know that answer, so it's really not important. We do know, as we'll look at next week, that, that uh, the New Testament commends Rahab. But this question, this, this uh, moral question, well, was she right or wrong to lie in this instance? Joshua's point is to tell simply what happened. And that God uses what happened and what did happen indicates Rahab's faith. So we don't come to the book of Joshua 2 to come to moral principles. There's a lot of other places in the Bible we go to for that, right? But Rahab here indicates her loyalty. But then look at verse 7. So the men, the men believe Rahab. The men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. 
So what type of Fords these were, we don't know, but they got in them and they drove and pursued them. No, the Fords is simply talking about a more um, shallow place in the, uh, uh, near the Jordan River that maybe these men would have gone. So the, the, these men have no reason to think that Rahab was, was not completely honest with them. So they pursue them all the way to the Jordan as far as they could go. And right when these uh, pursuers left, the gate was indeed shut so that no one could come in or come out. You see, what we see is that Rahab in verses 4 to 6 indicates her loyalty. We're starting to see hints. If we've never read this story before, we would be scratching our heads and we would be saying, why is Rahab not being truthful here? Does she want her own city to be destroyed? In verse 7, we see that Jericho, the inhabitants of Jericho, those who are working for the leader of Jericho, their king, Jericho is indicating its loyalty. It's not to the one true God. It's to their own prosperity and to their worldly king. So principle number one or characteristics, characteristic number one of an unlikely faith is that an unlikely faith is sourced in God. Principle number two that we'll just begin to look at is that an unlikely faith will be a faith that turns to God. Verses 8 to 14 show us this. An unlikely faith is a faith that turns to God. You see, for us as spiritually dead individuals, again, Ephesians 2 tells us, for us to, to turn from our sin in repentance and to look to Jesus as the one and only Lord and Savior for whom we give our lives that is a miraculous event. It doesn't matter for if you have a testimony that you were 55 and saved out of drugs and alcohol, or if you were five and you accepted Jesus as a little child with your mother or father at home. It was the same miraculous event that happened. Because dead people can't live. Dead people can't wake up themselves. There must be life outside of themselves that is given. And like I said at the beginning, everyone has faith. The atheist has faith that there is indeed no God. But the miracle of true faith is always that faith is turning to the right source, which is God Himself. In verses 8 to 11, Rahab, we see, comes to a realization. We're going to close with this. It says, verse 8, Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know 
that the Lord has given you the land. And that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. And here's the key sentence of this entire chapter. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. He is God. As we're going to see next week, Rahab is indicating where her loyalties are. The I don't know of verse 5, when she says, I do not know where the men went, now becomes, in verse 9, I know the Lord has given you the land. Folks, are you living today in the reality that the Lord, your God, that He is a personal God, That if you are in Christ, He is your God. He is for you. And at the same time, because He is for you, He demands your loyalty and allegiance because you cannot be happy any other way. You can have all the money in the world and all the success in the world and all of the everything in the world. And if you are truly God's, you will be in utter, an utter miserable state. The Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Doesn't matter how high or how low, He is God. And through His Son, Jesus Christ, He condescended to the earth below. And took on flesh. And conquered the greatest battle there ever was. Sin and death. And we today are citizens of His kingdom. Looking forward to a better promised land. Are you living for that? Do you need to be reminded from the story of Rahab? That there is something higher for you to live for than all that you can get in your Jericho. Because we are living as strangers and aliens in this land. Would we walk by faith in Christ? Because a faith that conquers is a faith in Christ. Let's pray.